Section 5 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Uses of Second-Hand Garments I have now to describe the uses to which the several kinds of garments which constitute the commerce of the old clothes exchange are devoted, whether it be merely in the resale of the apparel to be worn in its original form, or in a repaired or renovated form, or whether it be worked up into other habiliments, or be useful for the making of other descriptions of woollen fabrics, or else whether it be fit merely for its last stages, the rag-bag for the paper-maker, or the manure-heap for the hop-grower. Each left-off garment has its peculiar after-uses, according to its material and condition. The practised eye of the old clothes-man at once embraces every capability of the apparel, and the amount which these capabilities will realise, whether they be woollen, linen, cotton, leathern, or silken goods, or whether they be articles which cannot be classed under any of these designations, such as mackintoshes and furs. A surtout coat is the most serviceable of any second-hand clothing, originally good. It can be re-cuffed, re-collared, or the skirts re-lined with new or old silk, or with a substitute for silk. It can be restored if the seams be white, and the general appearance, what is best understood, by the expressive word seedy. This restoration is a sort of re-dyeing, or rather re-colouring, by the application of gall and logwood, with a small portion of copperas. If the undersleeve be worn, as it often is, by those whose avocations are sedentary, it is renewed, and frequently with a second-hand piece of cloth to match, so that there is no perceptible difference between the renewal and the other parts. Many an honest artisan in this way becomes possessed of his Sunday frock-coat, as does many a smarter clerk or shopman, impressed with a regard to his personal appearance. In the last century, I may here observe, and perhaps in the early part of the present, when woollen cloth was much dearer, much more substantial, and therefore much more durable, it was common for economists to have a good coat turned, it was taken to pieces by the tailor and remade, the inner part becoming the outer. This mode prevailed alike in France and England, for Molière made his miser Arpagon magnanimously resolved to incur the cost of his many years old coat being turned for the celebration of his expected marriage with a young and wealthy bride. This way of dealing with a second-hand garment is not so general now as it was formerly in London, nor is it in the country. If the surtout be incapable of restoration to the appearance of a respectable garment, the skirts are sold for the making of cloth caps, or for the material of boys' or youth's waistcoats, or for poor country curate skaters, but not so much now as they once were. The poor journeyman Parsons, I was told, now goes for the new slops. They are often green and is had by vertisements and bills, and then books about fashions which is all over both country and town. Do you know, sir, why them there books is always made so small? The leaves is about four inches square. That's to prevent there being any use as waste paper. I'll back a coat, such as is sometimes sold by a gentleman's servant, to wear out two new slops. Cloaks are things of as ready sale as any kind of old garments. If good, or even reparable, they are in demand both for the home and foreign trades, as cloaks. If too far gone, which is but rarely the case, they are especially available for the same purposes as the surtout. The same may be said of the greatcoat. Dress coats are far less useful, as, if cleaned up and repaired, they are not in demand among the working classes, and the clerks and shopmen, on small salaries, are often tempted by the price, I was told, to buy some wretched new slop thing, rather than a superior coat second-hand. The dress coats, however, are used for caps. Sometimes a coat, for which the collector may have given ninepence, is cut up for the repairs of better garments. 
trousers are reseated and repaired where the material is strong enough, and they are, I am informed, now about the only habiliment which is ever turned, and that but exceptionally. The repairs to trousers are more readily effected than those to coats, and trousers are freely bought by the collectors, and as freely re-bought by the public. Waistcoats, I still speak of woollen fabrics, are sometimes used in cap-making, and were used in gaiter-making. But generally, at the present time, the worn edges are cut away, the buttons renewed or replaced by a new set, sometimes of glittering glass, the buttonholes repaired, or their jaggedness gummed down. And so the waistcoat is reproduced as a waistcoat, a size smaller. Sometimes a vest, as waistcoats are occasionally called, is used by the cheap bootmakers for the legs of a woman's cloth boots, either laced or buttoned, but not a quarter as much as they would be, I was told, if the buttons and buttonholes of the waistcoat would do again in the boot. Nor is the woollen garment, if too thin, too worn, or too rotten to be devoted to any of the uses I have specified, flung away as worthless. To the traders in second-hand apparel, or in the remains of second-hand apparel, a dust-hole is an unknown receptacle. The woollen rag, for so it is then considered, when unravelled, can be made available for the manufacture of cheap yarns, being mixed with new wool. It is more probable, however, that the piece of woollen fabric which has been rejected by those who make or mend, and who must make or mend so cheaply that the veriest vagrant may be their customer, is formed not only into a new material, but into a material which sometimes is made into a new garment. These garments are inferior to those woven of new wool, both in look and wear. But in some articles, the remanufacture is beautiful. The fabric thus snatched, as it were, from the ruins of cloth, is known as shoddy, the chief seat of manufacture being in Dewsbury, a small town in Yorkshire. The old material, when duly prepared, is torn into wool again by means of fine machinery, but the recovered wool is shorter in its fibre and more brittle in its nature. It is indeed more a woollen pulp than a wool. Touching this peculiar branch of manufacture, I will here cite from the Morning Chronicle a brief description of a shoddy mill, so that the reader may have as comprehensive a knowledge as possible of the several uses to which his left-off clothes may be put. Quote, the small town of Dewsbury holds in the woollen district very much the same position which Oldham does in the cotton country, the spinning and preparing of waste and refuse materials. To this stuff the name of shoddy is given, but the real and orthodox shoddy is a production of the woollen districts and consists of the second-hand wool manufactured by the tearing up, or rather the grinding, of woollen rags by means of coarse willows called devils the operation of which sends forth choking clouds of dry, pungent dirt and floating fibres, the real and original devil's dust. Having been, by the agency of the machinery in question, reduced to something like the original raw material, fresh wool is added to the pulp in different proportions, according to the quality of the stuff to be manufactured, and the mingled material is at length reworked in the usual way into a little serviceable cloth. There are some shoddy mills in the neighbourhood of Huddersfield, but the mean little town of Dewsbury may be taken as the metropolis of the manufacture. Some mills are devoted solely to the sorting, preparing and grinding of rags, which are worked up in the neighbouring factories. Here great bales, choke full of filthy tatters, lie scattered about the yard, while the continual arrival of loaded wagons keeps adding to the heap. A glance at the exterior of those mills shows their character. The walls and part of the roof are covered with the thick clinging dust and fibre, which ascends in choky volumes from the open doors and glassless windows of the ground floor, and which also pours forth from a chimney, constructed for the purpose, exactly like smoke. The mill is covered as with a mildewy fungus, and upon the grey slates of the roof the frowsy deposit is often not less than two inches in depth. In the upper story of these mills the rags are stored, 
a great ware-room is piled in many places from the floor to the ceiling with bales of woollen rags torn strips and tatters of every colour peeping out from the bursting depositories there is hardly a country in europe which does not contribute its quota of materials to the shoddy manufacturer rags are brought from france germany and in great quantities from belgium denmark i understand is favourably looked upon by the tatter merchants being fertile in morsels of clothing of fair quality of domestic rags the scotch bear off the palm and possibly no one will be surprised to hear that of all rags irish rags are the most worn the filthiest and generally the most unprofitable the gradations of value in the world of rags are indeed remarkable i was shown rags worth fifty pounds per ton and rags worth only thirty shillings the best class is formed of the remains of fine cloth the produce of which eked out with a few bundles of fresh wool is destined to go forth to the world again as broadcloth or at all events as pilot cloth fragments of damask and skirts of merino dresses form the staple of middle-class rags and even the very worst bales they appear unmitigated mashes of frowsy filth afford here and there some fragments of calico which are wrought up into brown paper the refuse of all mixed with the stuff which even the shoddy making devil rejects is packed off to the agricultural districts for use as manure to fertilize the hop gardens of kent Quote, under the rag ware-room is the sorting and picking room here the bales are opened and their contents piled in close poverty-smelling masses upon the floor the operatives are entirely women they sit upon low stools or half sunk and half enthroned amid heaps of the filthy goods busily employed in arranging them according to the colour and the quality of the morsels and from the more pretending quality of rags carefully ripping out every particle of cotton which they can detect piles of rags of different sorts dozens of feet high are the obvious fruits of their labour all these women are over eighteen years of age and the wages which they are paid for ten hours work are six shillings per week they look squalid and dirty enough but all of them chatter and several sing over their noisome labour the atmosphere of the room is close and oppressive and although no particularly offensive smell is perceptible there is a choky mildewy sort of odour a hot moist exhalation arising from the sodden smouldering piles as the workwomen toss armfuls of rags from one heap to another this species of work is the lowest and foulest which any phase of the factory system can show the devils are upon the ground floor the choking dust bursts out from door and window and it is not until a minute or so that the visitor can see the workmen moving amid the clouds catching up armfuls of the sorted rags and tossing them into the machine to be torn into fibry fragments by the whirling revolutions of its teeth the place in which this is done is a large bare room the uncovered beams above the rough stone walls and the woodwork of the unglazed windows being as it were furred over with clinging woolly matter on the floor the dust and coarse filaments lie as if it had been snowing snuff the workmen are coated with the flying powder they wear bandages over their mouths so as to prevent as much as possible the inhalation of the dust and seem loath to remove the protection for a moment the rag grinders with their squalid dust-strewn garments powdered to a dull greyish hue and with their bandages tied over the greater part of their faces move about like reanimated mummies in their swathings looking most ghastly the wages of these poor creatures do not exceed seven shillings or eight shillings a week the men are much better paid none of them making less than eighteen shillings a week and many earning as much as twenty-two shillings not one of them however will admit that he found the trade injurious the dust tickles them a little they say that is all they feel it most of a monday morning after being all sunday in the fresh air when they first take to the work it hurts their throat a little but they drink mint tea and that soon cures them they are all more or less subject to shoddy fever they confess especially after tenting the grindings of the very dusty sorts of stuff worsted stockings for example 
The shoddy fever is a sort of stuffing of the head and nose with sore throat, and it sometimes forces them to give over work for two or three days, or at most a week. But the disorder, the workmen say, is not fatal, and leaves no particularly bad effects. In spite of all this, however, it is manifestly impossible for human lungs to breathe under such circumstances without suffering. The visitor exposed to the atmosphere for ten minutes experiences an unpleasant choky sensation in the throat, which lasts all the remainder of the day. The rag grinders, moreover, according to the best accounts, are very subject to asthmatic complaints, particularly when the air is dull and warm. The shoddy fever is said to be like a bad cold, with constant acrid running from the nose, and a great deal of expectoration. It is when there is a particularly dirty lot of rags to be ground that the people are usually attacked in this way, but the fever seldom keeps them more than two or three days from their work. In other mills, the rags are not only ground, but the shoddy is worked up into coarse bud cloth, a great proportion of which is sent to America for slave clothing, and much now sold to the slop shops. After the rags have been devilled into shoddy, the remaining processes are much the same, although conducted in a coarser way as those performed in the manufacture of woollen cloth. The weaving is for the most part carried on at the homes of the workpeople. The domestic arrangements consist in every case of two tolerably large rooms, one above the other, with a cellar beneath, a plan of construction called in Yorkshire a house and a chamber. The chamber has generally a bed amid the looms. The weavers complain of irregular work and diminished wages. Their average pay, one week with another, with their wives to wind for them, i.e. to place the thread upon the bobbin which goes into the shuttle, is hardly so much as ten shillings a week. They work long hours, often fourteen per day. Sometimes the weaver is a small capitalist, with perhaps half a dozen looms, and a hand jenny for spinning thread, the workpeople being within his own family as regular apprentices and journeymen." End quote. Dr. Hemingway, a gentleman who has a large practice in the shoddy district, has given the following information touching the shoddy fever. Quote, the disease popularly known as shoddy fever, and which is of frequent occurrence, is a species of bronchitis caused by the irritating effect of the floating particles of dust upon the mucous membrane of the trachea and its ramifications. In general, the attack is easily cured particularly if the patient has not been for any length of time exposed to the exciting cause, by effervescing saline draughts to allay the symptomatic febrile action, followed by expectorants to relieve the mucous membrane of the irritating dust. But a long continuance of employment in the contaminated atmosphere, bringing on as it does repeated attacks of the disease, is too apt in the end to undermine the constitution and produce a train of pectoral diseases, often closing with pulmonary consumption. Ophthalmic attacks are by no means uncommon among the shoddy grinders, some of whom, however, wear wire gauze spectacles to protect the eyes. As regards the effect of the occupation upon health, it may shorten life by about five years on a rough average, taking, of course, as the point of comparison, the average longevity of the district in which the manufacture is carried on. End quote. Shoddy fever is in fact a modification of the very fatal disease induced by what is called dry grinding at Sheffield. But of course the particles of woollen filament are less fatal in their influence than the floating steel dust produced by the operation in question. At one time shoddy cloth was not good and firm enough to be used for other purposes than such as padding by tailors and in the inner linings of carriages by coach-builders. It was not used for purposes which would expose it to stress, but only to a moderate wear or friction. Now shoddy, which modern improvements have made susceptible of receiving a fine dye, it always looked a dead colour at one period, is made into cloth for soldiers' and sailors' uniforms, and for pilot coats, into blanketing, drugget, stair and other carpeting, and into those beautiful table covers, with their rich woollen look, on which elegantly drawn and elaborately coloured designs are printed through the application of aquafortis. 
Thus the rags which the beggar could no longer hang about him to cover his nakedness may be a component of the soldier's or sailor's uniform, the carpet of a palace, or the library table cover of a prime minister. There is yet another use for old woollen clothes. What is not good for shoddy is good for manure, and more especially for the manure prepared by the agriculturists in Kent, Sussex and Herefordshire, for the culture of a difficult plant, hops. It is good also for corn land, judiciously used, so that we again have the remains of the old garment in our beer or our bread. I have hitherto spoken of woollen fabrics. The garments of other materials are seldom diverted from their original use, for as long as they will hold together they can be sold for exportation to Ireland, though of course for very trifling amounts. The black velvet and satin waistcoats, the latter now so commonly worn, are almost always resold as waistcoats, and oft enough, when rebound and rebuttoned, make a very respectable-looking garment. Nothing sells better to the working classes than a good second-hand vest of the two materials of satin or velvet. If the satin, however, be so worn and frayed that mending is impossible, the back, if not in the same plight, is removed for rebacking of any waistcoat, and the satin thrown away, one of the few things which in its last stage is utterly valueless. It is the same with silk waistcoats, and for the most part with velvet, but a velvet waistcoat may be thrown in the refuse heap with the woollen rags for manure. The coloured waistcoats of silk or velvet are dealt with in the same way. At one time, when under waistcoats were worn, the edges being just discernible, Quantities were made out of the full waistcoats, where a sufficiency of the stuff was unworn. This fashion is now becoming less and less followed, and is principally in vogue in the matter of white underwaistcoats. For the jean and other vests, even if a mixture of materials, there is the same use as what I have described of the black satin, and failing that, they are generally transferable to the rag-bag. Hats have become in greater demand than ever among the street buyers since the introduction into the London trade, and to so great an extent, of the silk, velvet, French or Parisian hats. The construction of these hats is the same, and the easy way in which the hat bodies are made has caused a number of poor persons, with no previous knowledge of hat-making, to enter into the trade. "'There's hundreds starving at it,' said a hat manufacturer to me in Bermondsey, Locksfields, and the Borough. Aye, hundreds. This facility in the making of the bodies of the new silk hats is quite as available in the restoration of the bodies of the old hats, as I shall show from the information of a highly intelligent artisan, who told me that, of all people, he disliked rich slop-sellers. But there was another class which he disliked more, and that was rich slop-buyers. The bodies of the stuff or beaver hats of the best quality are made of a firm felt, wrought up of fine wool, rabbit's hair, and so on, and at once elastic, firm, and light. Over this is placed the nap, prepared from the hair of the beaver. The bodies of the silk hats are made of calico, which is blocked, as indeed is the felt, and stiffened and pasted up until only a hat-maker can tell, as it was expressed to me, good sound bodies from bad, and the slop-masters go for the cheap and bad. The covering is not a nap of any hair, but it is of silk or velvet. The words are used indifferently in the trade, manufactured for the purpose. Thus, if an old hat be broken, or rather crushed, out of all shape, the body can be glazed and sized up again, so as to suit the slop-hatter, if sold to him as a body, and that whether it be of felt or calico. If, however, the silk cover of the hat be not worn utterly away, the body, without stripping off the cover, can be re-blocked and re-set, and the silk velvet trimmed up and set or re-dyed, and a decent hat is sometimes produced by these means. More frequently, however, a steeping shower of rain destroys the whole fabric. Second-hand caps are rarely brought into this trade. Such things as drawers, flannel waistcoats, and what is sometimes called inner wear, sell very well when washed up, patched, for patches do not matter in a garment hidden from the eye when worn, or mended in any manner. 
flannel waistcoats and drawers are often in demand by the street sellers and the street labourers as they are considered good against the rheumatics these habiliments are often sold unrepaired having been merely washed as the poor man's wives may be competent to execute an easy bit of tailoring or perhaps the men themselves if they have been reared as mechanics and they believe perhaps erroneously that so they obtain a better bargain shirts are repaired and sold as shirts or for old linen the trade is not large men's stockings are darned up but only when there is little to be done in darning as they are retailed at tuppence the pair the sale is not very great for the supply is not lots might be sold i was informed if they was to be had for them flash coves never cares what they wears under their wellingtons the women's apparel is sold to be reworn in its original form quite as frequently or more frequently than it is mended up by the sellers the purchasers often preferring to make the alterations themselves a gown of stuff cotton or any material if full-sized is frequently bought and altered to fit a smaller person or a child and so the worn parts may be cut away it is very rarely also that the apparel of the middle classes is made into any other article with the sole exception perhaps of silk gowns if a silk gown be not too much frayed it is easily cleaned and polished up so as to present a new gloss and is sold readily enough but if it be too far gone for this process the old clothes renovator is often puzzled as to what uses to put it a portion of a black silk dress may be serviceable to reline the cuffs of the better kind of coats there is seldom enough i was told to reline the two skirts of a surtout and it is difficult to match old silk a man used to buying a good second-hand surtout i was assured would soon detect a difference in the shade of the silk if the skirts were relined from the remains of different gowns and say i'll not give any such money for that piebald thing skirts may be sometimes relined this way on the getting up of frock coats but very rarely there is the same difficulty in using a coloured silk gown for the recovering of a parasol the quantity may not be enough for the gores and cannot be matched to satisfy the eye for the buyer of a silk parasol even in rosemary lane may be expected to be critical when there is enough of good silk for the purposes i have mentioned then it must be borne in mind the gown may be more valuable because saleable to be reworn as a gown it is the same with satin dresses but only a few of them in comparison with the silk are to be seen at the old clothes exchange among the purposes to which portions of worn silk gowns are put are the making of spencers for little girls usually by the purchasers or by the dressmaker who goes out to work for one shilling a day of children's bonnets for the lining of women's bonnets the relining of muffs and fur tippets the patching of quilts once a rather fashionable thing the inner lining or curtains to a bookcase and other household appliances of a like kind this kind of silk too no matter in how minute pieces is bought by the fancy cabinet makers the small masters for the lining of their dressing cases and work boxes supplied to the warehouses but these poor artisans have neither means nor leisure to buy such articles of those connected with the traffic of the old clothes exchange but must purchase it of course at an enhanced price of a broker who has bought it at the exchange or in some establishment connected with it the second-hand silk is bought also for the dressing of dolls for the toy shops and for the lining of some toys the hat manufacturers of the cheaper sort at one time used second-hand silk for the padded lining of hats but such is rarely the practice now it was once used in the same manner by the bookbinders for lining the inner part of the back of a book if there be any part of silk in a dress not suitable for any of these purposes it is wasted or what is accounted wasted although it may have been in wear for years it is somewhat remarkable that while woollen and even cotton goods can be shoddied and if they are too rotten for that they are made available for manure or in the manufacture of paper no use is made of the refuse of silk though one of the most beautiful and costly of textile fabrics 
its remains are thrown aside when a beggar's rags are preserved and made profitable. There can be little doubt that silk, like cotton, could be shoddied, but whether such a speculation would be remunerative or not is no part of my present inquiry. There is not, as I shall subsequently show, so great an exportation of female attire as might be expected in comparison with male apparel, the poorer classes of the metropolis being too anxious to get any decent gown when within their slender means. Stays, unless of superior make and in good condition, are little bought by the classes who are the chief customers of the old clothesmen in London. I did not hear of any reason for this from any of the old clothes people. One man thought, if there was a family of daughters, the stays which had become too small for the older girl were altered for the younger, and that poor women liked to mend their old stays as long as they would stick together. Perhaps there may be some repugnance, especially among the class of servant-maids who have not had to rough it, to wear street-collected stays, a repugnance not perhaps felt in the wearing of a gown which probably can be washed and is not worn so near the person. The stays that are collected are for the most part exported, a great portion being sent to Ireland. If they are worn to rags, the bones are taken out, but in the slop-made stays it is not whalebone but wood that is used to give or preserve the due shape of the corset, and then the stays are valueless. Old stockings are of great sale both for home wear and foreign trade. In the trade of women's stockings there has been in the last twenty or twenty-five years a considerable change, before that period, black stockings were worn by servant girls and the families of working people and small tradesmen. They saved washing. Now, even in Petticoat Lane, women's stockings are white, or mottled, or some light-coloured, very rarely black. I have heard this change attributed to what is rather vaguely called pride. May it not be owing to a more cultivated sense of cleanliness? The women's stockings are sold darned and undarned, and at retail prices from a penny to fourpence, a penny or tuppence being the most frequent prices. The petticoats and other underclothing are not much bought second-hand by the poor women of London, and are exported. Women's caps used to be sold second-hand, I was told, both in the streets and the shops, but long ago, and before muslin and needlework were so cheap. I heard of one article which formerly supplied considerable stuff, the word used, for second-hand purposes, and was a part, but never a considerable part, of the trade at rag fair. These were the pillions, or large, firm, solid cushions, which were attached to a saddle, so that a horse carried double. Fifty years ago, the farmer and his wife, of the more prosperous order, went regularly to church and market on one horse, a pillion sustaining the good dame. To the best sort of these pillions was appended what was called the pillion cloth, often of a fine but thin quality, which being really a sort of housing to the horse, cut straight and with few if any seams, was an excellent material for what I am informed was formerly called making and mending. The colour was almost exclusively drab or blue. The pillion on which the squire's lady rode and Sheridan makes his Lady Teasel deny the pillion and the coach-horse, the butler being her cavalier, was a perfect piece of upholstery, set off with lace and fringes, which again were excellent for second-hand sale. Such a means of conveyance may still linger in some secluded country parts, but it is generally speaking obsolete. Boots and shoes are not to be had, I am told, in sufficient quantity for the demand from the slop shops, the translators, and the second-hand dealers. Great quantities of second-hand boots and shoes are sent to Ireland to be translated there. Of all the wares in this traffic, the clothing for the feet is what is most easily prepared to cheat the eye of the inexperienced, the imposition having the aids of heel-ball, and so on, to fill up crevices, and of blacking to hide defects. Even when the boots or shoes are so worn out that no one will put a pair on his feet, though purchasable for about a penny, the insoles are ripped out, the soles, if there be a sufficiency of leather, 
are shaped into insoles for children's shoes, and these insoles are sold in bundles of two dozen pairs at tuppence the bundle. So long as the boot or shoe be not in many holes, it can be cobblered up in Monmouth Street or elsewhere. Of the translating business, transacted in those localities, I had the following interesting account from a man who was lately engaged in it. Translation, as I understand it, said my informant, is this, to take a worn old pair of shoes or boots, and by repairing them, make them appear as if left off with hardly any wear, as if they were only soiled. I'll tell you the way they manage in Monmouth Street. There are in the trade horses' heads. Note, a horse's head is the foot of a boot with sole and heel, and part of a front. End note. The back and the remainder of the front having been used for refooting boots. There are also stand-bottoms and lick-ups. A stand-bottom is where the shoe appears to be only soiled. And a lick-up is a boot or shoe relasted to take the wrinkles out, the edges of the shoes having been rasped and squared, and then blacked up to hide blemishes, and the bottom covered with a smother, which I will describe. There is another article called a flyer, that is, a shoe sold without having been welted. In Monmouth Street, a horse's head is generally retailed at two shillings sixpence, but some fetch four shillings sixpence, that's the extreme price. They cost the translator from one shilling a dozen pair to eight shillings, but those at eight shillings are good and used for the making up of Wellington boots. Some horses' heads, such as are cut off that the boots may be refooted on account of old fashion or a misfit when hardly worn, fetch two shillings sixpence a pair, and they are made up as new-footed boots, and sell from ten shillings to fifteen shillings. The average price of feet, that is, for the horse's head as we call it, is fourpence, and a pair of backs, say tuppence. The back is attached loosely by chair-stitching, as it is called, to the heel, instead of being stitched to the insole, as in a new boot. The wages for all this is one shilling fourpence in Monmouth Street, in Union Street, Borough, one shilling sixpence. But I was told by a master that he had got the work done in Gray's Inn Lane at ninepence. Put it, however, at one shilling fourpence wages. Then with fourpence and tuppence for the feet and back, we have one shilling tenpence outlay. The workman finds his own grindery. And eightpence profit on each pair sold at a rate of two shilling sixpence. Some masters will sell from seventy to eighty pairs per week. That's under the mark and that's in horses' heads alone. One man employs, or did lately employ, seven men on horses' heads solely. The profit generally in fair shops, in stand-bottoms, is from one shilling sixpence to two shillings per pair, as they sell generally at three shillings sixpence. One man takes, or did take, a hundred pounds in a day, it was calculated as an average, over the counter, and all for the sort of shoes I have described. The profit of a lick-up, is the same as that of a stand-bottom. To show the villainous way the stand-bottoms are got up, I will tell you this. You have seen a broken upper leather. Well, we place a piece of leather, waxed, underneath the broken part, on which we set a few stitches through and through. When dry and finished, we take what is called a soft heel-ball, and smother it over, so that it sometimes would deceive a courier, as it appears like the upper leather. With regard to the bottom, the worn part of the sole is opened from the edge. A piece of leather is made to fit exactly into the hole or worn part, and it is then nailed and filed until level. Paste is then applied, and smother put over the part, and that imitates the dust of the road. This smother is obtained from the dust of the room. It is placed in a silk stocking, tied at both ends, and then shook through just like a powder puff, only we shake at both ends. It is powdered out into our leather apron, and mixed with a certain preparation which I will describe to you. Note, he did so. End note. But I would rather not have it published, as it would lead others to practice similar deceptions. I believe there are about two thousand translators, so you may judge of the extent of the trade. And translators are more constantly employed than any other branch of the business. Many make a great deal of money. A journeyman translator can earn from three shillings to four shillings a day. You can give the average at twenty shillings a week, as the wages are good. It must be good, for we have two shillings for soling, heeling, and welting a pair of boots, 
and some men don't get more for making them. Monmouth Street is nothing like what it was. As to curious old garments, that's all gone. There's not one English master in the translating business in Monmouth Street. They are all Irish, and there is now hardly an English workman there, perhaps not one. I believe that all the tradesmen in Monmouth Street make their workmen lodge with them. I was lodging with one before I married a little while ago, and I know the system to be the same now as it was then, unless indeed it be altered for the worse. To show how disgusting these lodgings must be, I will state this. I knew a Roman Catholic who was attentive to his religious duties, but when pronounced on the point of death, and believing firmly that he was dying, he would not have his priest administer extreme unction, for the room was in such a filthy and revolting state he would not allow him to see it. Five men worked and slept in that room, and they were working and sleeping there in the man's illness, all the time that his life was despaired of. He was ill nine weeks. Unless the working shoemaker lodged there, he would not be employed. Each man pays two shillings a week. I was there once, but I couldn't sleep in such a den, and five nights out of the seven I slept at my mother's, but my lodging had to be paid all the same. These men, myself excepted, were all Irish, and all teetotalers, as was the master. How often was the room cleaned out, do you say? Never, sir, never. The refuse of the men's labour was generally burnt, smudged away in the grate, smelling terribly. It would stifle you, though it didn't me, because I got used to it. I lodged in Union Street once. My employer had a room known as the barracks. Every lodger paid him two shillings sixpence a week. Five men worked and slept there, and three were sitters, that is, men who paid a shilling a week to sit there and work, lodging elsewhere. A little before that there were six sitters. The furniture was one table, one chair, and two beds. There was no place for purposes of decency. It fell to bits from decay, and was never repaired. This barrack man always stopped the two shilling sixpence of lodging if he gave you only that amount of work in the week. The beds were decent enough, but as to Monmouth Street, you don't see a clean sheet there for nine weeks, and recollect such mobs are dirty fellows. There was no chair in the Monmouth Street room that I have spoken of, the men having only their seats used at work. But when the beds were let down for the night, the seats had to be placed in the fireplace, because there was no space for them in the room. In many houses in Monmouth Street, there is a system of subletting among the journeymen. In one room lodged a man and his wife, a laundress worked there. Four children and two single young men. The wife was actually delivered in this room, whilst the men kept at their work. They never lost an hour's work. Nor is this an unusual case. It's not an isolated case at all. I could instance ten or twelve cases of two or three married people living in one room in that street. The rats have scampered over the beds that lay huddled together in the kitchen. The husband of the wife, confined as I have described, paid four shillings a week, and the two single men paid two shillings a week each, so the master was rent-free, and he received from each man one shilling sixpence a week for tea, without sugar, and no bread and butter, and tuppence a day for potatoes. That's the regular charge. In connection with the translation of old boots and shoes, I have obtained the following statistics. There are, in Drury Lane and streets adjacent, about 50 shops. Seven Dials, 100. Monmouth Street, 40. Hanway Court, Oxford Street, 4. Litson Grove, 100. Paddington, 30. Petticoat Lane, shop stands and so on, 200. Summerstown, 50. Field Lane, Saffron Hill, 40. Clerkenwell, 30. Bethnal Green, Spitalfields, 100. Rosemary Lane and so on, 30. Total, 774 shops. Employing upwards of 2,000 men in making up and repairing old boots and shoes besides hundreds of poor men and women who strive for a crust by buying and selling the old material previously to translating it and by mending up what will mend they or their children stand in the street and try to sell them monmouth street now the great old shoe district has been sketched by mr dickens not as regards its connection with the subject of street sale or of any particular trade 
but as to its general character and appearance. I first cite Mr. Dickens' description of the seven dials, of which Monmouth Street is a seventh. Quote, the stranger who finds himself in the dials for the first time, and stands Belzoni-like at the entrance of seven obscure passages, uncertain which to take, will see enough around him to keep his curiosity and attention awake for no inconsiderable time. From the irregular square into which he has plunged, the streets and courts dart in all directions until they are lost in the unwholesome vapour which hangs over the housetops and renders the dirty perspective uncertain and confined. And lounging at every corner, as if they came there to take a few gasps of such fresh air as has found its way so far, but is too much exhausted already to be enabled to force itself into the narrow alleys around, are groups of people whose appearance and dwellings would fill any mind but a regular Londoner's with astonishment. In addition to the numerous groups who are idling about the gin-shops and squabbling in the centre of the road, every post in the open space has its occupant, who leans against it for hours with listless perseverance. It is odd enough that one class of men in London appear to have no enjoyment beyond leaning against posts. We never saw a regular bricklayer's labourer take any other recreation, fighting excepted. Pass through St Giles in the evening of a weekday. There they are in their fustian dresses, spotted with brick dust and whitewash, leaning against posts. Walk through Seven Dials on Sunday morning. There they are again, drab or light corduroy trousers, blucher boots, blue coats and great yellow waistcoats, leaning against posts. The idea of a man dressing himself in his best clothes to lean against a post all day. The peculiar character of these streets, and the close resemblance each one bears to its neighbour, by no means tends to decrease the bewilderment in which the unexperienced wayfarer through the dials finds himself involved. He traverses streets of dirty, straggling houses, with now and then an unexpected court, composed of buildings as ill-proportioned and deformed as the half-naked children that wallow in the kennels. Here and there a little dark chandler's shop, with a cracked bell hung up behind the door to announce the entrance of a customer, or betray the presence of some young gentleman in whom a passion for shop tills has developed itself at an early age, others as if for support against some handsome lofty building which usurps the place of a low dingy public house. Long rows of broken and patched windows expose plants that may have flourished when the dials were built, in vessels as dirty as the dials themselves and shops for the purchase of rags, bones, old iron, and kitchen stuff, vie in cleanliness with the bird fanciers and rabbit dealers, which one might fancy so many arks, but for the irresistible conviction that no bird in its proper senses who was permitted to leave one of them would ever come back again. Brokers' shops, which would seem to have been established by humane individuals as refugees for destitute bugs, interspersed with announcements of day-schools, penny theatres, petition-writers, mangles, and music for balls or routs, complete the still life of the subject, and dirty men, filthy women, squalid children, fluttering shuttlecocks, noisy battledoors, reeking pipes, bad fruit, more than doubtful oysters, attenuated cats, depressed dogs, and anatomical fowls are its cheerful accompaniments. If the external appearance of the houses, or a glance at their inhabitants, present but few attractions, a closer acquaintance with either is little calculated to alter one's first impression. Every room has its separate tenant, and every tenant is, by the same mysterious dispensation which causes a country curate to increase and multiply, most marvellously, generally the head of a numerous family. The man in the shop, perhaps, is in the baked Jiminy line, or the firewood and hearthstone line, or any other line which requires a floating capital of eighteen pence or thereabouts, and he and his family live in the shop and the small back parlour behind it. Then there is an Irish labourer and his family in the back kitchen, and a jobbing man, carpet-beater and so forth, with his family in the front one. In the front one pair, there's another man with another wife and family. And in the back one pair, there's a young woman as takes in tambour work and dresses quite genteel, who talks a great deal about my friend 
and can't abear anything low. The second floor front and the rest of the lodgers are just a second edition of the people below, except a shabby genteel man in the back attic, who has his half pint of coffee every morning from the coffee shop next door but one, which boasts a little front den called a coffee room, with a fireplace over which is an inscription politely requesting that, to prevent mistakes, customers will please to pay on delivery. The shabby genteel man is an object of some mystery, but as he leads a life of seclusion, and never was known to buy anything beyond an occasional pen, except half pints of coffee, penny loaves, and haperth of ink, his fellow lodgers have naturally supposed him to be an author, and rumours are current in the dials that he writes poems for Mr. Warren. Now anybody who passed through the dials on a hot summer's evening, and saw the different women of the house gossiping on the steps, would be apt to think that all was harmony among them and that a more primitive set of people than the native dialers could not be imagined. Alas, the man in the shop ill-treats his family, the carpet-beater extends his professional pursuits to his wife, the one-pair front has an undying feud with the two-pair front, in consequence of the two-pair front persisting in dancing over his, the one-pair front's, head, when he and his family have retired for the night. The two-pair back will interfere, with the front kitchen's children. The Irishman comes home drunk every other night, and attacks everybody, and the one pair back screams at everything. Animosities spring up between floor and floor. The very cellar asserts his equality. Mrs. A smacks Mrs. B's child for making faces. Mrs. B forthwith throws cold water over Mrs. A's child for calling names. The husbands are embroiled, the quarrel becomes general, an assault is the consequence, and a police officer the result. End quote. Of Monmouth Street, the same author says, quote, We have always entertained a particular attachment towards Monmouth Street, as the only true and real emporium for second-hand wearing apparel. Monmouth Street is venerable from its antiquity, and respectable from its usefulness. Holywell Street we despise. The red-headed and red-whiskered Jews, who forcibly haul you into their squalid houses, and thrust you into a suit of clothes, whether you will or not, we detest. The inhabitants of Monmouth Street are a distinct class, a peaceable and retiring race, who immure themselves, for the most part, in deep cellars or small back parlours, and who seldom come forth into the world, except in the dusk and coolness of evening, when they may be seen seated in chairs on the pavement, smoking their pipes, or watching the gambols of their engaging children, as they revel in the gutter, a happy troop of infantine scavengers. Their countenances bear a thoughtful and a dirty cast, certain indications of their love of traffic, and their habitations are distinguished by that disregard of outward appearance, and neglect of personal comfort, so common among people who are constantly immersed in profound speculations, and deeply engaged in sedentary pursuits. Through every alteration and every change, Monmouth Street has still remained the burial place of the fashions, and such, to judge from all present appearances, it will remain until there are no more fashions to bury. End, quote. End of section 5